Phil is going to come and bring us our Bible in. The reading this morning is from Romans 12, verses 9 to 21, on page 1139. Page 1139, Romans 12, and it's entitled, Love in Action. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. May I pray for you, Paul, as you come to speak to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul. Thank you for his ministry in this archdeaconry. We pray your blessing on him now as he speaks to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you again after a short break. And uh, Peter, your vicar, has asked me to think a little bit about um, how the church and its life is distinctive. And in the background is Acts 2, verse 42 to the end, where we read a brief description of the church in its very earliest days after Pentecost and Peter uh, calling the crowd to repentance and faith in Jesus and then the great response of 3,000 people forming the first generation of the church and how that was beginning to be shaped. There was something attractive, something compelling about the life and the message that was being proclaimed uh, there 
uh, in Acts chapter 2. And so to try and take that on further and say, how does this apply to our church here in Baston Hill? Um, I've been asked to look a bit more carefully at Romans 12, verses 9 to 21, the passage that Philip has just read for us. And when you first look at this passage, it's not uh, all that clear how to make it into a, a message that can be grasped by a congregation. In fact, you may conclude by the end of the sermon, I've failed to do that uh, even now. But um, as I looked at it, there were 23 imperatives in these verses, and they come in quick-fire succession one after another. So if you'd like me to come back for the next 23 weeks and deal with one at a time, that would be fine. But as they stand and as they flow out, they become quite overwhelming And you, as you try to absorb what Paul is exhorting us to do and then work out how we put all of that into practice. And I'll be honest with you, I went back to this passage again and again and again, saying, how do I... Uh, open it up so that we can understand what Paul is trying to say. Well, of course, what he's trying to say is, in some ways, very simple. What makes the church attractive to outsiders is love. High-quality, Christ-like love, demonstrated in the life of Jesus, in his earthly life, and then supremely in his death on the cross. So Paul is saying, if we can live and breathe that kind of love, then people will be drawn towards the life of the church and then to the heart of it, which is an encounter with Jesus himself. So let's try and look at this passage in three different blocks. I want to divide verses 9 to 21 into three parts. The first will be verses 9 to 13, and I'm going to call it genuine love. The translation you heard was sincere love. I want to call it genuine love. The second part will be verses 14 to 18, and I'm going to call that gregarious love. And the final part will be verses 9 to 21, and I want to call that God-fearing love. So in verses 9 to 14, we're dealing with the subject of genuine love. And of course, those are the opening words of the passage. Let love be genuine or sincere, says Paul. And then, of course, out come all the exhortations about how we're supposed to put that into practice. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, outdo one another in sharing honor, do not lag zeal. Hang on, Paul. Just let's slow things up a bit. Let's just see what's going on here. And I think one way to see what Paul is saying here is to go and look at the Greek and to realize that there's another way of reading these few verses. Most English translations give the impression that this block of verses, verses 9 to 13, is full of a series of commands. Do this, do that, do the other. But actually, when you look at the Greek, there's no verb in verse 9a. So most scholars assume that you have to supply the verb to be. And then they turn things into commands. So let love be genuine. Be aglow with the Spirit. Be affectionate to one another in brotherly or sisterly love, and so on. But here's the point. The Greek verb, to be, doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a series of commands. They could be a series of statements. So, the passage could read, 
not let love be genuine, but genuine love is, and then it draws it out, as you can see on the screen behind me now. Genuine love is all these different qualities. So what we're being given by Paul is a portrait of love. A bit similar to the one we come across in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind. You know the kind of verses I mean? Often heard in weddings and so on. Enabling us to see what it is that makes up high quality Christ-like love. And it's a passage that when it's put like that, becomes a kind of checklist. We can look at it and say, let's put Jesus as the subject of this passage. So Jesus is one who is genuinely loving. Jesus is one who abhorred evil. Jesus is one who clung to the good. Jesus is the one who was aglow with the spirit and so on. So we're being confronted with the likeness of Jesus as we look at this passage. Then we can get a bit more challenging and say, let's make me the subject of this passage. Paul Thomas is full of genuine love. He abhors evil. He clings to the good. He's aglow with the spirit. Is he? And so I look at it and think, this is a kind of image that is judging me, asking me some very searching questions about how loving I am. And then, of course, you bring the church into it. Christ Church, Baston Hill, is a church full of genuine love. It abhors evil. It clings to good. It's aglow with the spirit. Is it? You can ask yourself, as you look at this portrait of Christ-like love, and of course, if you conclude that you and your church is not conforming to this wonderful high standard of love, then you have to think, how can I get changed? How can I be transformed into this kind of likeness? How can I show this kind of love? And the only answer is through prayer. There's no other shortcut. It is through prayer, it is through inviting the Holy Spirit to come into your life and change you. Many years ago, a young missionary was appointed to go across to Africa. She had just finished her training, she was full of enthusiasm, and she was terribly excited by the fact that she was going to be posted to a place where there was a long-standing, well-known missionary who had many years of experience of being in Africa. And when she arrived there, she met the woman and immediately there was a kind of coldness in the relationship. This woman had lost her first love. This woman was slightly jealous of this zealous young missionary coming with all her enthusiasm. And in no time at all, the young missionary realized she was up against a very difficult situation. And she began to feel very lonely and very depressed and very bewildered. And she said to God, what can I do about this? And what she did was to take 1 Corinthians 13. She might have taken this passage as an alternative, but she took 1 Corinthians 13 and looked at what it says about love. And every night she opened the scriptures up to that page and she prayed into those words in 1 Corinthians 13. And nothing happened to start with, but over the months and as a year unfolded, so she was changed, so the other woman was changed, so their whole relationship was transformed. The Holy Spirit had come to work embodying, expressing Christ-like love in their relationship 
and they were renewed. So I believe any church, any individual who wants to have this genuine love that Paul is talking about in verses 9 to 13 will only achieve that through prayer, allowing the Holy Spirit to get deep inside us and change us. I want to call the second part of this passage gregarious love. And here I'm looking at verses 14 to 18. By gregarious, I mean outgoing, a love that has the energy to embrace those outside the immediate circle of our contacts, love that might take us outside our comfort zone. Again, the kind of high-quality love that we see in Jesus. Because if you watch Jesus in the Gospels, he's always noticing the person in the shadows, always seeing the person on the edge, always seeing the person that others would overlook. Zacchaeus in the tree, the widow of Nain, walking out of the city, heartbroken with her only son in the coffin. He notices these people. His love goes out beyond the immediate circle and touches them, even if it is costly. And I think we have to have this kind of outgoing, imaginative love. Perhaps you know the little poem by Edward Markham called Outwitted, which is about to appear on your screen. They drew a circle that shut me out, heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took them in. Gregarious, outgoing love is constantly drawing circles, larger circles, if need be, that can take others in. And so Paul, in this passage, in in this, in these verses, is taking our attention away from the internal life of the church and throwing our focus outside. There's a kind of clue to it because he's, the last phrase he uses to describe love is to pursue hospitality to strangers. So immediately, he's moving our attention outside the circle of the church towards those who are outside. And of course, once you start to think about relations with strangers, those who are not uh, regular attenders at church, who do not necessarily share our Christian faith, immediately it becomes quite challenging because it may be that they're quite negative in their relationship to us. Paul recognizes that. Bless those who persecute you is the very first piece of advice he gives. There will be those, there still are those in this world of 2017 who see Christians as an object of hatred and contempt. People who blow up churches in Egypt. People who victimize Christians in the workplace. People who want to see Christians imprisoned and put to death many of whom are fellow Christians are put to death for their faith in other parts of the world. And so it can be very difficult to relate to them and not to want to retaliate against their negativity. Not only are we to bless them, says Paul, but we are to identify with them in real, genuine empathy. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep, with those who weep. We're to care, genuinely care about our neighbors and offer them our support and our gentle solidarity. I remember when my wife and I first moved to a parish on the edge of York, 
we took our dog for a walk across some open fields. Suddenly, a tractor drew up alongside us and a farmer brandishing a gun told us in no uncertain terms to get off his land. My wife, a farmer's daughter, said, well, um, my father was a farmer and he used to allow us to uh, walk across uh, his fields and allowed others to do so. I didn't weed so we didn't see the problem. Well, said the farmer, get back to your father's farm then and go walk over his fields. It was a very unpleasant encounter. Not long afterwards, that same farmer was out shooting pheasant and as he went uh, across uh, a bit of a ditch, he tripped and his loaded gun went off and unloaded itself into his foot and blew his foot apart. Uh, horrible business. Fortunately, he had a Wellington boot on, so he was able to keep bits and pieces together. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, he was rushed. It's keeping me awake, isn't it? Um, <laughs> he was rushed to hospital in a lot of pain, where they had to rebuild his foot. And he was quite surprised when I appeared at his bedside to express my sadness at what had happened and my good wishes for his recovery. Bless those who persecute you. And don't be haughty, says Paul, but associate with the lowly. That's such a good reminder that it is so easy to overlook certain people in our community, especially those we're not going to feel necessarily comfortable with, people we don't feel are like us, and therefore we haven't the foggiest idea how we're going to connect with them. I remember Bishop John Waller, who was once Bishop of Stafford in this diocese, uh, and then went into semi-retirement down in Somerset, and I was a team vicar in the Langport area churches where he was also uh, working. And he was a very straight-talking man, Bishop Waller. And on one occasion, a member of his congregation uh, came up to him in the church that was in the very plush village that, uh, that he was living in and said, Oh, Bishop, obviously wanting to impress him, Oh, Bishop, I went along to see the new people in the large house last week. Very pleasant couple, very glad to be here. Had a nice gin and tonic with them. I see, said Bishop Waller. And have you also visited the young couple who've just moved into the council house down the village? I had a nice glass of squash with them. There was a strange, awkward silence in the conversation at that point. The unavoidable impression that Paul gives in these verses is that gregarious, outgoing love does not exclude anyone but embraces all, no matter how negative, how different, how argumentative they might be. So far as it depends on you, says Paul, be at peace with all. And to do that, we need to develop a certain kind of unshockability. A bit like Brother Andrew, uh, an Anglican priest who used to work in the East End of London in the 30s, a very rough and ready area. On one occasion, Brother Andrew was standing on a corner, just uh, looking around, and a man sidled up to him and said, uh, Brother Andrew, I need to tell you I've committed murder. What would you have done? He said, what? You know, but he didn't. He stayed completely unshocked and said, How often? <laughs> okay, that, I mean... <laughs> 
you know, there are all kinds of implications when someone makes a confession like that to you. But what I'm trying to get across here is the fact that he was so well loved and known in that community that someone felt they could go and tell him that. And he wouldn't just sort of go nuts and sort of produce a, a holier-than-thou attitude, but was there to journey with that man along the next stage, however difficult and demanding it might be. How can we, as a church in Baston Hill, have that kind of gregarious love in this community? And then the final section is verses 19 to 21, and I want to call it God-fearing love. Again, Paul seems to move our attention to this different clientele because at the end of the last section, he said, be at peace with all, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all. So he's kind of hinting there are going to be those who are hostile and very aggressive towards us as Christians. They act as enemies of the Christian faith. They do whatever they can to obstruct and undermine what we're about in the community. And they talk about us in ways that are unfair. They talk about us in ways that uh, give a false impression of what the church is about. And we might feel we really want to get aggressive and put the record straight and start to clear our reputation. So how can we not do that in a way that will create an aggressive-looking church that is all about its own rights and its position and status? How can we be loving when we're being bombarded by kind of negativity and criticism. Well, Paul tells us we can do it through God-fearing love. Let me explain what I mean. Essentially, I mean that due to the brokenness of our world and our human race, it will never be possible to create perfect harmony on earth. We cannot have utopia here and now, nor for that matter, even in the church. There will always be shortcomings in our attempts to express and embody the love of God. So recognizing that, we need to leave the completion of the love of God to his wisdom and timing. He will gather up in his time and in his way the inadequacies and insolubilities of our human world and deal with them appropriately. Sometimes he will do it here and now, and we'll be just amazed how he's worked. Other times, it will have to wait till the end of time when God will face us as judge. But the point is, we need sometimes to let go, not think we've got to do it all ourselves in all our strength, but sometimes we've got to let go and allow God to take control. There's a lovely story to illustrate what I mean. In the 1920s, Lord Radstock was staying in a hotel in Norway, and he was looking forward to a, a peaceful week, but constantly a little girl had found the piano down in the foyer, and she decided that she was going to be a great musician or something, so she sat at the keyboard going, plink, plonk, plink, plonk, plonk, plink, and in the end it was driving him mad. And so he went out onto the landing and looked down over the stairwell as if to give somebody a hint that he wanted this stopped. Anyway, instead of it stopping, a man went across and sat on the piano stool next to the little girl plinking and plonking. And as she was plinking and plonking on the different keys, he began to play other music on the other parts of the keyboard. And all of a sudden, her plinking and plonking was woven in to this beautiful, fluent 
flow of music. So suddenly it was a very pleasurable thing to hear what was coming from the piano, despite her plinks and plonks being in there somewhere. And I think that's a bit of a parable of how God looks at our plinking and plonking uh, in our attempts to love and says, let me bring the richness and the beauty of my Holy Spirit and of the love that I've got for the world alongside and beyond and around and over and inside all you're doing and somehow to beautify it. You may say, well, that sounds great, uh, Archdeacon, but what Paul is talking about here is the wrath of God. So how do you um, harmonize that with the beauty and the loveliness of God, the wrath of God? Well, let's be careful. The wrath of God is quite a set phrase in the Bible. There's a book by a man called Hansen about that thick, and I, I read it some years ago, called The Wrath of the Lamb. And it's an exploration of what this phrase, the wrath of God, means in the scriptures. And essentially, it does not mean um, the release of God's anger onto the world. It's not as if God says, right, I've had enough of this, loses his temper, and then let's go in anger and destruction on the world. The wrath of God is a very controlled process, woven into the very fabric of our world. The wrath of God is about backlash. The wrath of God is about the consequences that you intend to fall negatively upon someone else coming back onto you. In the Psalms, it says, the net they laid secretly for others, they fell into themselves. In other words, they were planning to trap other people and then they fell into it themselves. It came unstuck and came back on them. And in the same way, when people sometimes plan to do evil things to others, those things come back on their own heads. And sadly, there is this process, isn't there, of when we are foolish and irresponsible, then sometimes we face the consequences when a person smokes or drinks excessively and then they get cancer at a young age, it's no surprise really because what they've done is to break the laws of the natural world. They've crushed their own immunity system and then all of a sudden everything breaks down. So in the same way, the wrath of God is that process of working whereby negative things can come back on those who seek to perpetrate them. And so sometimes, as a church, we've got to say, we're going to leave it to the wrath of God. We're going to let God have his way in this situation. Now, in that parish in York, after we got over the joy of the farmer and his gun and all the rest of it, um, there came about a situation much later in my ministry where we were going to sell. We had two church halls, and we decided we needed to sell one because we only needed uh, to have the other. Um, and we were in the process of this, it was a long drawn out process, uh, of selling this hall, and a young couple turned up in the parish from Spain. Uh, and they'd come home because uh, her parents were living in the parish, and they were about to have a baby, and she wanted to be home, and she wanted to have the support of her parents. So she gave birth to the little baby in York Hospital, and sadly, um, he had a congenital lung disease, and after six weeks, they had to turn off the machine, and he died. And I've never forgotten the heartbreaking funeral that we held in the church. Anyway, the father was an artist, and he didn't want to go home to Spain. He wanted to stay there so that her parents could support her and so on. So he was looking for a studio. And we thought, well, 
Out of compassion, why don't we just give him the hall to use for the time being until we sell it? So he, th- he, he thanked us for that. Yes, he would uh, set up. So immediately the little hall became his studio and he started work and so on. It all seemed very fine. Uh, and he was paying us a certain amount of rent. And then three months later, he sent a letter to me saying, the hall's mine now. What? He said, yeah, I, I'm the occupant. I've got certain rights. Uh, you know, I'm staying here and uh, it's mine. Well, of course, we knew that if we took out a very... Uh, complicated lawsuit, we could probably get him out in the end. But you just think about the consequences of that. You know, here's the church, picking on a a, a deeply bereaved man, uh, kicking a man when he's down. You think of how the parents would have reacted, her parents would have reacted. Look at the church, he's got no compassion, no kindness, etc., etc. And yet the point is, he was telling us that we couldn't have the hall to sell because it was his now. What were we going to do? Well, the answer was we were going to pray. Say, Lord, we do not know how to solve this, but our eyes are upon you. So we did. We prayed. And nothing happened for a good few months. We appealed to him, said, would you please, you know, not do this and come out of the hall? Nope. He wasn't interested. He had won the good day as far as he was concerned. So we waited and we prayed. And we just said, we cannot be aggressive about this. And after about five or six months, the solicitor we had dealing with the whole transaction rang me up and said, don't hold your breath, but this month he has forgotten to pay his rent. If, do you know God gives amnesia? Anyway, uh, if, if he fails to pay it next month, then he will have forfeited his right to the hall. So there we were for four weeks like this. <laughs> Sure enough, after four weeks, he forgot to pay the rent a second time. So he forfeited his right to the hall, and he had to leave. And that was done without any nastiness on our part. He had just gone wrong himself, and so he left, and then eventually uh, the hall was sold. But in that situation, we just saw the hand of God. We saw the wrath of God, if you like, at work, bringing a situation to right where it had gone wrong. And so that's what I mean by God-fearing love. It allows the church to be gentle, to be peaceable, and not to go around banging drums and insisting on its rights, etc., even though it is being persecuted or bullied by those in society. So Paul is saying, come if you want to be an attractive church, if you want to be something that's different from other organizations, then you need these three things. You need genuine love, the Christ-like love that we see in Jesus. You need gregarious love, a love that goes out beyond the immediate circle of your fellowship and reaches to those who are in the community and disconnected from God. And lastly, you need a God-fearing love that will even go to your enemies and seek to welcome them into the kingdom of God. If we can be a church like that, then I believe many more people will be attracted to the gospel and to a knowledge and love of Jesus. Amen.